and welcome to our second podcast session today, speaking to delegates at the CISI conference. I'm Carmen Reichmann, Multimedia Editor at FT Advisor, and for the next 20 minutes or so, I'll be discussing client meetings with Brendan Fraser, founder of Wired Planning, psychologist Dr. Moira Summers, and Kusal Ariawanza, advisor at Appleton Gerard. Hi all, thanks for joining us today. Really good to have you here. Um, you were just on a panel earlier today where you discussed discovery meetings. For those who missed the session, what was your biggest takeaway, Brendan? Oh man, biggest takeaway. Yeah, I, there are a few, but I'll try to keep it as short and sweet as, as possible. But um, the two things that come to mind for me are, one, the idea that discovery is called discovery for a reason, meaning that we need to think about two things. Number one, what is it that I want to discover? And this is in no particular order. What is it that I want to discover about the client, about the prospective client or client that I'm meeting with? And I think we do think that one, uh, th we think through that one quite a bit pretty naturally. All right, I'm in this meeting, I need to discover things. What do I want to discover? Well, I want to know about what they want to do in their life, what's important to them, you know, what do they have as far as their money and their assets go? And I think that's good. You, got, you have to think through that. The part that I think that we forget about which is natural, it's nothing wrong with it, is we don't ask the second question around discovery, which is what is it that we want clients to discover or prospective clients to discover about themselves? Because when you do this right, when it's done right, it's not just meant to be a session where you gather information and have these aha moments. It's a, It should be, when it's done right, it's an aha, transformative, um, meaningful experience for this client or prospective client where they're walking out saying, you know, that's something I've never thought about before. That's something I never realized before. Or, you know, one of the best is when you're meeting with a couple and you've got spouses or partners and they look at each other and, they, and then one of them looks at the other and I'll look at Kasal here where I say that and they look and they go, I never knew you wanted to do that. I never knew that that was important to you. And so just being able to create the space to um, for the person, for this couple or the person to discover things about themselves is I think overlooked, but equally, if not more important than what do we want to discover about them? That's number one. Number two, I, I kind of like the way this was framed in, in the conversation, but um, you got, you have to have a backbone. That's the term that was used, a backbone set of questions that you ask each and every person. Now, each and every person is going to be different. The example that was used in there was, well, I have a somebody that's in their 40s and they've got a family and they're running a business. And then I have somebody else that comes in and they're 80 years old. Can I ask, like, would I ask the same questions to both of those people? No, probably not. But you're going to have a core set or a framework or a backbone of questions that you would ask anybody, no matter what, no matter who they are. And if you have that backbone that you feel good about that's in place, it naturally makes for a better conversation because you know what you're going to be asking, why you're going to be asking it. And it's all done to help them discover things about themselves. Mm -hmm. So how do you approach client meetings? How do you tease information out of clients? Yeah. Was that for me still or is that to... Kuzal. Okay. Kuzal. Okay. So I, um, my, my style of advice is I preempt before the meeting what it's likely to be. So my preempting involves saying things like, I'm really looking forward to getting to know about you and understanding you, basically where you come from, how you got here what your journey is and how you're going to get to where you want to be. I'm really intrigued by that. And that's already gone into their subconscious by the time the discovery meeting starts. They know that some of the questions will be slightly invasive. 
Where I come in in identifying that is on a much more of a psychological basis where I don't have a, a list of questions per se. What I have is I will coordinate the meeting, I will let it flow according to their agenda and their uh, emotions as long as I get to the point of understanding what their situation is and where they really come from. It could be pretty quick with some people and with others it could take quite a long time. And that really comes down to how quickly you can establish an aura and trust with the clients. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that makes sense. But um, how do you know, Kusal, um, after a meeting, how do you know whether it's gone well? I'll know it's gone well if they, because I record all meetings. Sometimes people can be a bit restrictive, shall I say. After the meeting, when they go back and they give an explanation and they expand on that, that's when I know something has really worked. For example, recently a lady came and she had ample amounts of money. Her husband's passed away and she doesn't spend much. Her previous advisors have basically told her not to gift money to her child, her sing a single child, because the tax man wouldn't like it. So they mollycoddled her in a way that they retained her assets. But she had an issue with them, came to me. We had a chat and I said, I'm really intrigued to understand your expenditure patterns now. And she opened up briefly saying, well, actually, it started, I would say, probably from, and there was a pause. And I said, childhood? <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. And I used to go to my grandma's house. And this was in Wales. And she used to give me this nice purse. Every few days, she used to give me some coins. And I was obsessed about getting the purse full. And I made sure I only spent money on holidays when the purse was full. And when the purse was less than full, I made sure I replenished it. And I've actually brought that into this day and age, I think. And we just let it progress, so and so forth. And when the meeting ended, she then really opened up and said, just going back to that, I was thinking about what you were saying. And my mother was exactly the same. She kept telling me we don't have any money and we shouldn't be spending money. So this lady, what she needed was just somebody to listen to her and give her permission to say, actually, you know what, you've got too much. Here, you can actually spend this much of money. But to get to that point, I couldn't really ask her many questions. I just had to let her express herself and figure it out for herself. Mm -hmm. And um, Brendan, do you have any um, anecdotes of when um, a meeting either went well or didn't go well? Yeah, it's the meetings that don't go well that tend to stick out quite a bit. Um, but I will say this, it, it's the meetings that I would sit there and assess that I feel like didn't go well that led me to transform what I did in discovery meetings because what I found was the outcome was too unpredictable. So there'd be some that would go well. Uh, somewhere I'd wake up and be like, man, I must have woken up on the right side of the bed. The stars must be aligned today. Maybe they had two cups of coffee and they normally have one. And they was just like, man, this is clicking and firing on all cylinders. And then there would be others where I, I felt like it went well. And, I, and I've got story after story on this where I felt like it went well. It's like, man, we sat there for a couple hours. We talked about life. Things went well. Felt like we had a connection. And then nothing ever came from it. And that unpredictability would weigh on me as somebody that like I would I know not to do this. I know not to base what I do just fully on the outcome, but you should focus more on the on the process. 
Uh, but that would, that would eat at me. And so it led me to the point where I was like, all right, I've got to, I've got to create some sort of structure or framework where I know that I'm doing exactly what I need to do in these meetings so that I can feel good at the end going, Hey, I did this meeting the exact way that I wanted to do it. I accomplished what we needed to accomplish based on what was important to the client. And no matter how it turns out, regardless of how it turns out, I know that I'm an, I can feel confident saying if they don't become a client, if it doesn't move forward, it's not because of how I conducted the conversation. So it took away the unpredictability by putting, I created a, a consistent system or process for that meeting. And so it, back to your question, um, do I have any anecdotes as, as far as what sticks out? I've got plenty, but I, the thing I wanted to mention was it were the, the anecdotes that I could tell for days on the story or the, sorry, the meetings that didn't go well is what led to me saying, all right, it's time to do something where I can feel not where I'm not worried about the outcome, but I'm focused more on the process and how to have a great meeting. And then whatever the outcome is, it's not because I did anything wrong. It's just there, there could be a number of factors at play. And so I think to answer your question, ultimately, the anecdote is <laughs> that it's the same story. The client came in. We have a good what I felt was a good conversation. It never it didn't end up the way that I wanted it to go. They didn't become a client. And that led to this like, OK, hang on. I, I want more of those meetings where they leave and you can tell it went well and they get in the car and they say, you know what, that's one of the best conversations that I've ever had around money. And so the thought was, how do I how can you reverse engineer to make that a consistent experience every single time? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, Moira, let's um, let's come to you. What's the psychology behind meeting a stranger in a very it, like very quickly getting to know them? Um, getting them to open up in a professional environment? Well, I think that financial planners have an advantage because when people come in, much of the decision-making has has happened in their mind that you don't have to prove anything. People pretty much assume that you are qualified. You know, it's, it's think about when you go to a physician or you go to a mechanic, you absolutely need to know that you can have a good relationship with this person and that this person is trustworthy, but you don't ask to look at their diplomas. Uh, You just assume sort of this baseline of competency. And unfortunately, financial planners in particular have have a tendency to want to explain their process and why they do things the way they do. And clients are that's not what they want to know. They want to know, is this the person that I can trust to help me with this very thorny problem? Is this the person that I can trust to be with me on the worst days of my life in the future and on the best days of my life? Um, so, so if you keep that in mind as a professional, that your job is to help the person feel psychologically and intellectually safe with you, um, then, then that will orient you to the right issues. Mm-hmm. And do you have any tips on how to make somebody feel safe in your in your environment? Um, one of the most important things to do is to ensure that the client has way more airtime than you do. So ask questions, do not interrupt. Make sure that you take the time at the outset of the meeting to ask why the client is there. You know, questions like, what brings you here today? Mm-hmm. And 
what do you most want to get out of this meeting today? What would make this meeting the best use of your time? Uh, and, and to say, let's make sure that I put that on the agenda, uh, that, that we, we really capture this. <clears throat> so that, uh, that already helps to, so that the client knows that he or she or they will be will come out of the meeting with some approximation of what it is that they wanted. Another way of making people feel um, psychologically safe with you is to pay very careful attention that you do not let professionalized jargon creep into the conversation. One of the, one of the things that people identified to me when I was doing research for my book on, on this very thing was that often when they go into meetings with financial professionals, they end up feeling stupid and they're not stupid. They just don't know this word that, that the, that is second nature now to the financial professional. So to do your level best to make sure that you are, you are using everyday language until you have evidence that it's okay to use more technical language. Those would be, I would say, the, the most important parts of an initial meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, client meetings, uh, Moira, I imagine it can be very easy um, when you get on with the clients, but perhaps when a client isn't on your wavelengths, when those two personalities meeting that aren't particularly compatible, mm -hmm. I imagine it can also be quite awkward. How important is it that the advisor and client and perhaps even the client's spouse get on on that personal level? Mm -hmm. Well, the client's spouse is also your client. So it's really important not to sort of divide them into um, the person I like and the person that happens to come into the meeting with them. Uh, you really need to make sure that you're um, capable of being in a position of trust with both folks. Um, one thing that it's really important to remember is that often the first meetings that people have with financial advisors are being held during times of, of heightened stress or excitability, that there's some major life transition that they're facing or that they've just been through. So maybe they've just been given handed news, you know, that their marriage is over. Maybe they've just been given news that, um, their company is going to be bought out and they've got to make some decisions. And so often the things that bring people into advisors practice for that, that initial discovery meeting, it's not business as usual in anybody's life at that point. And so the client themselves may be at their cognitive best, at their emotional best, at their relational best. So I always try to give people, you know, an extra bit of grace and to try to engage my curiosity at that point to say, what could be going on that's leading to this behavior that's a little off-putting for me? And sometimes I will just, I will say, um, I will own the discomfort that I'm feeling um, and 
and let people know if there's something that I need to happen that's different from what's going on in the room. And if they indicate that they can't do that, that they can't not yell, for example, um, then then I just, you know, take steps to make sure that they uh, are ushered out of the office safely <laughs> or um, I say that, you know, let's try and do this another time or let me see if I can make some recommendations about who would be a better person for you to work with. Um, but but often it, there is just that that idea of fit and it's a really good idea to make sure that um, you're giving people the benefit of the doubt. But when the evidence is in, act quickly to either move on with the engagement or get them to a different person. Mm -hmm. um, Kozal, do you think um, it's important um, for clients and yourself to be in the same wavelengths? Do you think it would be difficult to serve a client that you didn't feel you were on, a, on the same wavelength with? So there's two schools of thought here. One is a firm can say, you don't fit our profile. I don't like your attitude. We don't get on and we call it to an end. Another school of thought is, if a patient goes to a doctor and the doctor doesn't like the patient, the doctor's duty is to treat the patient. So provided that we are getting paid, I am there to answer a question. However, the process will be according to how I play the game. If they're closed to my style of discussion or questioning, the fault is not theirs, it's actually mine. So it's very important to understand the individual oscillations, I would say, of each person and to get a feeling as to what is actually happening. And you can't get into that frame of mind if you've got an agenda, if you've got an end goal in mind. And if that goal is something to do with a reward for you, it's bound to end in pain or failure. So for me, I see every opportunity, no matter how difficult or easy it is, as a mind game. My job is to really understand what is making this person impulsive or quick or arrogant. And I should be able to slow the pace down. And naturally, people, they're not rude. They're not going to jump up and say, oh, I've had enough. They will come into your level as long as you can have the patience. Mm -hmm. That's and interesting. An analogy I use is if somebody's fast, they want a quick decision. I say, if you go to a doctor and say, I've got a problem with my chest. I've been on Wikipedia and I think it's something to do with this thing called heart disease. It might be due to cholesterol. Could you prescribe to me simvastatin? What would the doctor say? And that's a light bulb moment for them thinking, oh, I see. So are you being a doctor here now? So we can then move on to a more in-depth, meaningful thing knowing that I actually know the process, mm -hmm. but I'm here to help you. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Brennan? Have you ever actually turned a client away because you thought it, it's just not, we're just, it's just awkward? Yeah, so this is something I've thought long and hard about. I had a hard stance on, I eventually evolved and came back from a conversation that I was having on my podcast. So for the long, for a long time, I had this belief that, hey, in, the discover, in a discovery meeting or really at any point in the process, like I firmly, truly, wholeheartedly believe that money is a tool to fund the life that you want to live. 
And everything that we do, all the lens that we look at should be, does this financial decision align with what's most important to you in your life and the things that you've told me are most important? And so I had an exercise that I would take people through to where we would start first and foremost by figuring out what is it that's truly most important to you in your life. And as I as fundamental belief that you have to do that to make the right money decisions, for a while I had this hard line sense of, you know, if they're not willing to engage in that conversation where we're not talking about money, we're talking about life then they're not the right fit. They're not going to be a client. And I think that's totally fine. In fact, if anybody does that, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I was having a conversation with a guy named Tim Maurer, uh, and he brought up something that kind of made me reverse course a little bit or altered a little bit, which was if I, if I was to mention it to somebody and then they said they didn't want to go that path or they wouldn't open up and go that path, that it might just be that they may not be ready. They can, They get it. They may agree, but they may not be ready to do it right now. And so I made a slight tweak where I said, hey, do you agree with this philosophy that money is a tool to fund the life that you want to live? That, that's the purpose of it. And if they said no to that, then we don't philosophically lie. I don't see a reason to work together. If they said yes, then I would say, all right, well, if it's okay, we don't have to go down this path now. But if you believe that, it's something that I want to come back and revisit in the future because it's a big part of what we do and a big part of our process. And so if, is that okay? And if they agreed to that, then I would, I'd be okay essentially kicking the can down the road. But for me, it was all about just figuring out, is there a philosophical misalignment? Because those are the ones that are the hardest to, to overcome, especially when you fundamentally believe that that's how it should be done. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Fascinating stuff. Just one more question before we finish up. Um, and this is kind of more relevant to later meetings where perhaps a little bit of advice is involved as well. But how do you know that a client understands what you're trying to tell them or ask of them? Well, you take that one. <laughs> well, it depends on whether it's a technical question or something to do with their plan. Because what I always say is, any piece of advice given, I always ask for confirmation saying, now, in your words, could you explain what you think we are doing and what the outcome would be? What could go wrong? Remember, I record all conversations. So if they don't know how to answer that, I'm in deep trouble because that's a compliance you know, evidence point there. So when I ask them that, they will then think, oh, gosh, he's going to ask me again and again this question. What could go wrong? And they give me that. And I say, so if that happens, then what happens? How would you feel there? Then they really open up and say, well, actually, you know, I understand that markets could go down. I think you did a 30% loss, is it, in that cash flow thing? Oh, yeah, I, I'm fine with that as long as I have my job. And what if that goes? Oh, then, and then another conversation starts. So I always ask for uh, affirmation from them mm -hmm. and confirmation mm -hmm. as to what they think I was on about. Very good. Very good tip as well. And a great uh, place to finish. Thank you very much for your time today. It was really, really good to speak to you. It's a really interesting and fascinating um, subject as well. Um, and thank, yeah, thanks for your time and have a great time. Great rest of your uh, time at the conference. Thank you very thank much. You. Thanks, right. Carmen. Thank you. Take care. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.